Hello and welcome to Woman Self Made Podcast. In today's episode, I'm talking to Manisha. Yes, just Manisha. She doesn't reveal her last name, nor does she show her face on social media. Regardless of that, she has built 50,000 plus following on her Instagram page, Right to Manisha, which has become one of her businesses. Manisha tells exactly how she's done it, and we talk about her journey to becoming a multi-million pound entrepreneur. So, without further ado, Manisha. So, Manisha, do you consider yourself to be successful? Wow, Marina, you're just hitting me hard. First question right in there. So, do I consider myself to be successful? I do. I do. It's taken me a long time to say that. I'm proud of my successes, but it has come with a lot of hardship as well. Um, it hasn't been easy. But as I walk through my house in the small of the night, I will obviously talk to you about the self-build and things like that. But as I walk through the house, I think to myself, wow, I can't believe I'm here at 42 years old with my kids, happy, healthy. And really, I do consider myself to be successful because of that. But a lot has happened, and I'm sure we're going to cover that off. Brilliant. Uh, did you always know that you'll be successful or did it just happen? That's a really one, interesting one, Marina. Um, when I was young, I was stupid and naive. I didn't, I wasn't the most academic children. Um, so I didn't know academically I was going to be successful. It wasn't until I fell out into the big wide world that I actually started to be a little bit more savvy in business and in corporate land. I always thought I was going to marry a rich man. Um, I will tell you an interesting story about that one. But it was maybe because of him and my family that really spurred on my successes. Because I think when you're actually looking at your children, you want the best for them. You want them to have a little bit of what you had in your life growing up. I did have a privileged upbringing, although it came with various hardships and I did have a tricky childhood. It was privileged. You know, I went to a really good school and I was given any extracurricular activities that I wanted. However, with that, I kind of just sat on my laurels a bit uh, when I went to school. So like I said, it was when I started off with my graduate scheme at Barclays, which I'm sure it's something we'll cover off, um, that's when I really started to be successful, as it were. Um, the interesting story I was referring to was that I was I think I was about 24, 25 years old. I was sitting in a Greek restaurant for my birthday and a fortune teller came round, and she said, by the end of the year, you are going to meet your soulmate and he's a teacher. I just kind of chortled, laughed along with my friends because I was like, well, I don't think a teacher's going to quite meet my financial needs. <laughs> I just wanted to marry a rich man. That's how naive and stupid I was. Um... And lo and behold, six weeks later, I'd met my husband, who was a teacher. And knowing that he wasn't necessarily going to be the breadwinner, knowing that I wanted to have children, knowing I wanted to live in a big, beautiful house, it really egged me on to be, inverted commas, successful. I love the story. <laughs> and I love those stories when uh, things do come true. Uh, yeah, exactly. Maybe maybe she was the reason why you met. Oh my God, can you imagine she... this big bosomed Greek lady um, fortune telling away? But you never know. And by six weeks, I'd met my husband and he's a teacher. Still a teacher, you know? 
Uh, so Manisha, could you just take us a little bit through your story? So you said uh, you were not really interested in the studies as going through school, but then you end up in the Barclays graduate uh, scheme. Yeah. So how did that happen? And and you also mentioned the success started from there. So what happened in your uh, university years, or so what what changed in you? Yeah. So as as I told you, I pretty much messed around, went to a super academic school, messed around, had a blast at school. Um, I then went on to university and I started to become a little bit more studious. And I think it was the independence. Sometimes when the rains come off children, they flourish in their own environment, you know, being at university and stuff. So anyway, in my second year, I noticed everybody was filling out application forms for interim um summer intern schemes and I was like oh right okay so we got given a booklet it started off with a and that was Arthur Anderson so Arthur Anderson used to be Accenture well sorry Arthur Anderson is now Accenture um so hold that thought about Accenture um because I'll be coming back onto that and the next one was B Barclays and that's as far as I got, really. So <laughs> Arthur Anderson was going bust at the time, okay, or whatever the situation was back then. And then we had Barclays. So filled out the application form. It was really dull and long. And I thought, God, I'm not going to do any more. I got the interview. And when I say that thousands upon thousands of people apply for summer interns, it's ridiculous. Anyway, turned up at the interview and I remember it so well. The interviewer said to me, why corporate finance? Why why do you want to be part of our organisation in corporate finance? And I said, <laughs> isn't that what Richard Gere does in Pretty Woman? And he just thought I was joking. I wasn't. Like, I genuinely didn't know why I was there. And again, it's this whole naivety thing. I was just pretty, like, twirling my hair and going, okay. Anyway... As the interview progressed, he really liked what I was saying, some of my ideas. I mean, they really put you on the spot. It's a really grueling process. And I got the job. So there are only 25 children. Well, sorry, I say children. I was, you know, 19 at the time. Um, only 25 people got selected. And I was one of them. And I think about a thousand applied, possibly more. I'm not sure. Did the summer intern program and they offer you a job straight after and here I am sitting with a graduate job at the age of 21, fell into it because I basically told him the story about how I wanted to be like Richard Gere in Pretty Woman because I could it. see Love he was it. checking into the Beverly Hills hotels. And I managed to get a graduate scheme job with a golden handshake, which is phenomenal. And that's where I really took off. I love the corporate life. I was put on a pedestal. Being a graduate at Barclays, they really do look after you and they put you on a pedestal. Um, and I was treated really well. Got promoted, led teams, led budgets of millions where I'd have to be writing to the board. And this was all by the age of 24. I was doing really well. Um, I had big teams, as I mentioned before, and it just really suited me, that lifestyle, getting dressed in the morning, now, here's the interesting bit. My dad was watching in the background in all of this. I was swinging my Burberry. Burberry was hot back then. Um, swinging my Burberry uh, bag around. Loads of disposable income. But I was staying at home. My parents never asked me for rent. I was really privileged, as I said. Really lucky that they were so supportive of me. Mm -hmm. Swinging my Burberry bag around. And my dad was like, hell no. 
No. So what he did was, we've always been into property as a family, um, kind of came with the territory. Mm-hmm. My dad put me on a train. He met me at Tottenham Court Road and he we found this ex-council home, four bedroom, and it was opposite UCL um, Hospital and the university. And he said to me, you're going to buy this. You are going to renovate it. And then your sister is going to live there with her friends and they're going to pay you rent at market rate. And that's what you're going to do. I was like, great, that's what I'm going to do. So anyway, I spent about £50,000 renovating. It was dire. And when I say Mm. dire, Marina, it was so dire. Mm. I remember when I walked in, there was this massive steak sitting on the countertop with like maggots and flies all over it. You can just imagine what kind of place this was. So I got a mortgage. Back then, you could put 90% loan to value down. My dad was a guarantor. You know, we're talking 20 years ago now. Um, and job done. Anyway, a year later, they said, hello there. We would like to offer you a remortgage. I was like, okay. Didn't have any idea what it was. I didn't even know what a remortgage was. They said, well, what we're going to do, we're going to come back and we're going to value your house for you. And we still want 90% loan to value and anything left in the pot is yours. I was like, all right. I'm about 23 now. Okay. Um, got my property. It's being rented out. I'm doing well with it. It's at the top of Tottenham Court Road. You're going to do well, right, And being in London. They rang me back and they said, well, the property's significantly gone up in value and here's a cheque for £100,000. I was like, what the actual... (laughs) I I didn't know what had happened to me. I thought, this is it. This is how I'm going to start. So using that 100000 what I did was I actually bought three properties very similar, ex-council, a bit dilapidated, and I basically did them up and I rented them out to either graduates or students. And I always picked in zone one or just on the cusp of zone one. And it's just been really fruitful for me, property. Um, So throughout my 20s, that's what I did. I really nurtured that portfolio, bought a couple of others. I also moved into the commercial property market as well. And using that equity is actually what built my home. So the house I currently live in is a self-built home. And using the equity that I drew down from the initial ones that I did 20 years ago is what has financed the current home we're sitting in together now. I love the storylines and also uh, word accidental just comes to mind that you fell into a Barclays totally, job and you fell into a property world. <laughs> I did you... a lot of falling over. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, husband, you stumbled upon a fortune teller and uh, the, the, hus- the husband comes up. That's, uh, that's a, such, an inter- such an interesting story. Uh, so uh, the property journey in your 20s, would you say that started the entrepreneurial path? Definitely. I would say for me, the property side of it definitely was the trigger because I learned how to make money while I was at work. So I had a day job and I think what's really important to me, and if there's anything I want to teach my children, is you need a side hustle. You need something where you're ticking along your nine to five job but you're hustling on the side, whether it's an online business, whether it's a little bit of consultancy on the side, whether it's property, whatever it is, there's a hustle. So I used to wake up early in the morning, 
I would then do little bits of work on the train. I would then go and do my day job and then I'd come back and work. And what you're doing is you're setting up little stepping stones for you in the future. And that is the biggest lesson I've learned from this. And I would say that the trigger was the properties because I was earning money while I was earning money. And that to me was good. And it felt like I was earning while I was sleeping because the mortgage was X and you're earning in London, possibly a hundred percent more than that in terms of profit. I loved it. I was paying tax. Tax was good at that time as well. And it was a big success story for me. And I just let the money nurture itself inside the property portfolio. And then when I needed it, I executed on it and drew down because the goal for me, Marina, the goal has always been, I wanted to live in a big, beautiful house. And that's not about about me being materialistic or, you know, fickle. I just really wanted a safe place for me to be with my children, create memories. Mm -hmm. And I I have a passion for interiors, which I'm sure we're going to come on to um, because that's where life has taken me, really. So the self-build is always on the cards. Interesting. So going going back, you start you started property and that set off the entrepreneurial set of events. But you're still at Barclays. How long you stayed there for? And why why did you leave? What happened? Oh God, actually, yes, I forgot about that. So left Barclays, I really loved the consulting side of my work. Um, where I was basically bossing people around and telling people what to do, telling them my ideas and what strategy they needed to follow. I was like, this is my calling. I'm going to go into consultancy. So remember how I told you to hold that thought with Accenture? Hmm, funny I mentioned that. I'm, I'm a lazy one. So I basically went back to Accenture and signed up on their graduate scheme. <laughs> I just thought I'd hop around on graduate schemes. And with my past role at Barclays, they'd just done a massive £750 million deal where they were taking over a lot of Barclays IT systems. And as soon as they saw Barclays on my CV, they were like, great, we're going to have you. And they sent me straight back to Barclays. (laughs) But I'm now under the Accenture umbrella. So with being at Accenture, I learned all the consultancy skills, how to devise strategy programs, how to merge companies together, you know, all that really good stuff for the financial services sector. Then what happened was after Barclays, but under Accenture's umbrella, I went to work at Lloyd's, Lloyd's TSB. Now, Lloyd's TSB were going through a huge merger with HBOS. And At that time, one of the senior partners at Accenture had just moved over to actually be the coup, the chief Mm -hmm. operating officer at Lloyd's. And he wanted to cherry pick his favorite Accenture people, basically his consultants. And he just lightly mentioned to me, look, do you want to come across as a contractor? Look, I don't want to start saying that he was poaching. That's not what he was doing. He was just offering the other side of the coin, basically, at this point. I was like, sure. So I set up my own consultancy company and I basically freelanced to Lloyd's TSB. When I was at Lloyd's, it was really apparent that I became a little bit indisposable. What happens is, is you really learn a lot about the strategy and the systems and the processes, especially Mm -hmm. when you're a consultant, that you almost, they can't get rid of you. Do you know what I mean? So I thought, I know. I'll go and get pregnant because that is the only way to get out of the city. So off I went and did that. Um, Why did you want to get out? 
I just, I knew, I was 30. I knew I wanted to have a family. Um, you're working 12 hour days, you know, it's not sustainable. So the only way to get out was to get pregnant because they'll just keep throwing more money at you. That's what it was like back then, you know? So I went on, had children and it wasn't until I actually had my firstborn that I started to lose my identity, really. You know, there's only so much you can talk about, the contents of a child's nappy, eating all that cake and how much formula they're drinking. As a working mum, it's you start to lose your identity and it all becomes a bit boring. You know, there is nothing wrong with embracing motherhood. I absolutely am so privileged to have my children, but it started to change me as a person and I needed to get back to work. It wasn't right for my mental health. Um, so I started to look for nurseries. Lo and behold, no freaking nurseries. Okay. So I was number 200 on waiting lists, but I knew I needed to get my ass back to work. Do you know what I mean? So I thought to myself, you know what? I'm such a good mum. I'm going to open my own set of day nurseries. And that's how the next chapter of my life unfolded. And I never went back to the city. This is so amazing uh, because how many uh, women are struggling with childcare and finding the right nurseries and how many of them go and, oh, I'm going to solve the problem. I'm going to set up my own nursery. So this yeah. is this is such a, such a wonderful story. So I think I'll come back uh later what why uh, and maybe trying to get a bit into your head and your mindset how do you go from having a problem and starting uh, yeah. s- starting starting a business or actually maybe we, uh, we can talk about it now sure sure uh, so then what happened was so babe in arms um i'm going to meetings um literally he is sitting underneath the table changing nappies in the car I am starting all those architectural meetings, viewing properties. And you know what? I really remember one point, which was a real turning point for me, actually. I've, it's just brought, sprung into my head, actually. I remember going to see a property where I was going to set up the nurseries. I had my little bugaboo and my eldest was in the, in the pram. And he puked everywhere in this person's house. Everywhere cream carpets and I just weaned him onto butternut squash so you can just imagine the sight so that had happened I quickly mopped it up got on top of that he cried he was screaming he'd pooped his pants he just it was everywhere where he wasn't wearing pants but there was a mess I then drove to Nando's I remember it so well in Collier's Wood and I was eating my chicken in pitta and then he had an almighty tantrum that I couldn't even eat And I remember going into Mamas and Papas and just sitting there sobbing, crying with him there because I was just trying to eat lunch. I was just trying to set up a business. I was just trying to view this property. And I felt so sad that I was lost in that whole process. And that was a massive turning point for me. And I remember it so well. And in what what way? That I just remember going, what am I doing? I can't go back to the city. I've got this child, he's stopping me from achieving from where where I want to go, you know? And I just remember it was such a low point, but then it was also the turning point. Because whenever I'm faced with adversity, I have a flipping good cry. 
And then within three seconds after that, I'm like, no, just no, no, this is not happening. And I remember walking out of that mama's and papa's changing room, basically a different woman going, this is not happening. I'm going to eat my Nando's chicken and pitta because no one stops me from eating a chicken and pitta. And we're going to do this together. So with that mindset, I got the offer accepted on that property where he had puked everywhere. And that was the beginning of it, really. Got the planning permission, converted this beautiful Victorian home um, in Wimbledon into a stunning nursery. It was gorgeous. Imagine like a real home from home environment. I wanted to pay very well. My ethos is if I pay well, it means that I can cherry pick my staff. So so how how did you know where to start? You went from financial services into consulting and then nursery as a business. Marina, I didn't. <laughs> I think it was pure arrogance <laughs> or delusions of grandeur. I think the hormones were still pumping around me from the birth. I just feel, actually hold that thought about delusions of grandeur because I had another one of those moments after I had my second. So we will come on to that. Um, I just thought I was, I was, I'm a really good mum. You know, I really tried my best to be a good mum. And I thought, how, how, how hard could it be? You know, um, I'm just going to look after 55 more children (laughs) and I'm just going to have some friends, people I'm going to hire to help me do that. And boy, was I wrong. I was so wrong. Setting up nurseries and owning nurseries for 10 years was possibly the hardest thing I did. It was soul destroying, but so rewarding. And that contrasting opinion still baffles me that how could I hate something but get so much reward from it? You know? Why was it hard? So, staff management. At any one point, I hired 50 staff. Um, overall, I, in the end, I had two nurseries. Um, they were only seven minutes apart from each other, but hiring 50 staff was really difficult and managing them. I did everything. I was HR. I was finance. I was IT. I was building management. And also I was quality assurance. My own child was there. So I was over them like a rash. You know, I wanted to make sure that this truly was the best provision for children. With that, I charged a premium. So what I did was I actually Something I call the Hagen dazs model. If you remember when Hagen dazs released onto the market, they hit Sainsbury's hard, but they came in at like £3.99. Sorry, what? <laughs> it's because they alluded to themselves that they are a premium ice cream maker. So everyone's like, I want that. I did exactly the same thing. I went in as much as my competitor, a premium competitor. But I had to, I had to meet that threshold. I had to make sure... The food was top quality. It wasn't going to be sausages and beans cut up and just pureed and given to children. That's not how we roll. I wanted to make sure it was a proper bit of salmon, broccoli, bit green beans, potatoes. And if we need to, we mash it up for the babies. But it actually comes from wholesome ingredients, organic where possible. Um, and for that, I charged a premium. We did everything we did mandarin lessons we did yoga lessons we had a dentist come and visit we did so many cute things it was a joke and 
this is what I mean about the rewarding part of it. I've seen these children, they're now 11, year, 11 years old, and you see them pottering around. And I think, wow, they've gone on to wonderful schools. They're such nice children. And I just think I had a part to play in that. Whether parents think we did or not, we had a big part to play in that, in their manners, in their in the way they interact with other children. And that, to me, was the rewarding part. The staff management part, I do not miss. I'm not going to lie. And I think I'm bold enough to say, I don't think I'm ever going to go into a business again where I'm going to manage that many staff. Um, it is... Uh, it- I can't. I can't imagine managing fifty uh, hiring and uh, managing them at the same time. Um, during those hard times, what was your support system? Was it uh, your internal belief, or was it your home and family and your husband? Was it your parents? Because yeah. to get through. Uh, difficulties and and adversity you you need something that keeps you going and helps you through it so what was it for you my husband was a massive support system in this um he basically took a step back you know he was a head of maths at this time and he basically halted his career to make sure that I could carry on and set up the nurseries because this is a, a maths game in itself that he knew the potential. If there is 200 children on a waiting list, I've got to have a slice of that pie. I opened my nurseries marina with 25 children on day one. That was my break even. You know, I really rode that wave and he recognized that. So what it meant for him is he had to pick up the laundry. He had to do the shopping. He had to look after my children. Um, And he really stepped up and he made sure that he was that homemaker and allowing me to basically sleep only four hours a day and pull through. So it was really tricky for the first three years to get us over the line, get us to our Ofsted grading and all of that kind of stuff. So I would say he was the backbone of my business. We had difficult times. At times I resented him because all I saw was him cooking doing the laundry I would have wanted that remember the stuff I told you earlier that Mm -hmm. I was really naive and stupid that I wanted a man to look after me but actually the roles had totally reversed he was looking after me in a different way but I was the one financially looking after the family so really without him this would have been very difficult would it have been impossible no I would have still done it because I'm very self-motivated and self-driven. But he just made life a little bit easier, and he made sure for my children that life stayed stagnant, it stayed the same. Not stagnant, that's a stupid word, word, but it stayed normal. Stable. Stable, that's what I meant. And um, that was really important. And as we move through the trajectory, when I set up the second nursery, when I had my second child, my husband actually took the maternity leave It was not cost effective for me to take maternity because I owned my own business. So I just strapped on a huge plaster onto my cesarean section. And I unfortunately had to get back to work within a week and a half because the nursery doesn't stand still. Children still need looking after. And whilst I wasn't there all the time, 
life goes on. People need to be paid. I have a moral obligation mm-hmm. to make sure my staff are looked after. It's not just the children I'm looking after. We're dealing with normal people in the public eye um, who come to work. They want to earn their money and they want to be paid for that and they want to go home. So I needed to get back onto it. So it's really interesting. I remember I used to work on the very top floor of our house. I came down once and my husband was hosting a coffee morning with his little apron on and he was sitting there in a room full of mums with their babies. And city was, morning. Uh, yeah. And um, he was there um, serving cups of tea. And I was like, are you all right there, babe? <laughs> and um, what was really fascinating, on the day he went back to work after a year, he just said to me, I have a newfound or disbelief I can't I don't know what the word is um respect for women who do this he says there were days where he felt postnatally depressed <laughs> because it's so hard when it's just you and the baby eat sleep repeat change nappy sleep drink milk it's hard it's really really tricky so with that he went back to work and that's where we had a massive dip not only in our relationship, in life. I'm now left holding the baby. I'm now running two nurseries and I've started to build the house. That is a lot. That is a lot for one person. And where I started to feel really resentful towards him is where he was going to work. He was working nine till 3.30, but yet I was running the business, had my little one, and also I had the eldest. I was doing pick up and drop off every day. And I also started to build the house. So when I say we've had trials and tribulations, it's been really tricky. But he's always been the backbone for me in answer to your question. I I really, I really love the story. And I think you are such a wonderful example of a modern family. And you having two boys, um, I think that's, uh, that's a great example of them seeing that. So they're uh, seeing in his father a respect towards Definitely. women and also uh, traditional roles perhaps changed uh, and reversed and they see it as as normality and uh, you see a successful family unit as a result. So Absolutely. Think- With my 11-year-old, I say to him over dinner, I was like, sweetheart, please do not expect a woman to look after you. It's just not the world we live in now. Women are striving. They're becoming more and more successful. I'm surrounded by inspirational women that I see, whether it's on Instagram, whether it's on the news, just, you you just have to open the paper to see such formidable women around you. And it's something I really want to instill in my boys. Did you ever feel pressured uh, by the stereotypes that we still have now, and uh, we definitely had when you were growing up? to be more traditional women maybe within uh, within your family within uh, uh, among your parents uh, with uh, with your cultural background but also i think any woman has uh, has that pressure at some points in their lives when uh, are you going to have children uh, you need to be firstly the mother then everything else did you feel pressured or you were above those stereotypes i did feel pressured, especially from a cultural perspective. What's really hard for me, Marina, was that I grew up in a really Caucasian white community, but I'm Indian. 
And my mum brought us up to be Indian. But we were surrounded in a very liberal arena, you know? So she expected me to do the cooking. She expected me to do the cleaning. And, you know, even even my in-laws, they wanted a traditional Indian woman. Um, life doesn't work like that, unfortunately. You don't choose the partners you, you know, you necessarily want for your family. And they really struggled. Both sides struggled with my inverted commas success because they wanted me to be the one cooking, cleaning, being the person raising our children. But equally, I recognized the fact that I wanted to be somewhere else, that I wanted to have the big, beautiful home, um, two cars in the driveway. And I trust me when I tell you, I'm actually not that materialistic, but I just wanted it. And I think sometimes you've got to be open about what you want, but I'm done. I'm not expecting a helicopter pad on the roof or anything like that, or a yacht sitting on the Thames, nothing like that. I just wanted a big, beautiful house with two cars in the driveway. That was my goal. So there was pressure. And I probably say even to this day, I think my in-laws, maybe my parents would wanted me to be a little bit more domesticated and stuff. But unfortunately, I can't do it all. And After this turning point, like what I mentioned to you when my second came along and we had this dip in our relationship, me and my husband, um, that is where we really started to come out of it. And he saw and I saw the dynamics. And people now probably look at us and they go, that's interesting. That's really interesting how he picks up the pieces where she doesn't. And I'm sure we're going to move on to this, but obviously I've now sold my business um, after the big build. Um... And I've now gone back to being a mum. So my time has come and I'm really, really enjoying it. You know, I do pick up, drop off every day. I cook. I haven't quite got round to doing the laundry full time. My husband still does that. And what is beautiful to see, my husband has really pushed himself in his career because it's his time now. So mm-hmm. he is now assistant head of a school and he is thriving. He has a tutoring business that he does. And it's now time for me to sit back for a bit. Obviously, I've still got the side hustles, so which we can go into. Let's do it now, actually. Do you want to do it now? <laughs> uh, yes, I'd like to cover uh, a little bit of the numbers of the uh, of the business. And yeah, sure. Uh, to, uh, first of all, to start the business, uh, did you need to put money in? And also, when, when you did uh, the exit... Was it a good one? Was it a, uh, sure. was it a successful, Let's do that. Let's successful do that. exit? So from the consulting days, I was earning good money. You know, I charged a day rate to Lloyd's TSB and it was good money. And I was 26 at the time when I first started that consulting role. So I did that for four years. We lived in a very, very normal home, me and my husband, and the mortgage was low you know. So I started to save up quite a bit. To set up my nursery business, I needed about a hundred to 150,000 per nursery, which I had tucked away over the course of the years and with the property income that I was talking to you about before. So I was save, 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 which was great. However, 
I also needed to buy the property that the nursery was going to be a tenant of. And when I set up businesses, I like to use that Propco Opco situation where you set up a limited company for your properties and then you have an operational business that rents from that company. It just worked really, really well. So what I did was with my family, my dad and my sister and my mum, we bought the properties that the nurseries rented from and we set that up up in a separate limited company. It just worked so much better. It's actually more tax efficient. There's nothing wrong with it. You're just interested parties. So off we did and went and did that. And we got lending for that because there's four of us. We're all working Mm -hmm. and all of that kind of stuff. Lending on the property side was not, not tricky. And then the nursery used that 150 to renovate it, buy all the fixtures and fittings, the furniture, all of that kind of stuff. And that's what we needed to set up the business, websites, marketing, initial hiring, all of that kind of stuff. After a year, the nursery started to make money and we were in a position to buy the second nursery. So I needed possibly about 100, 150 again to set up the second nursery. And off we just did the same cycle again. And then I was like, I need to stop. It's too much because I was doing this by myself. I was at a real turning point with both my nurseries. Do I run two nurseries well, beautifully and stop there? Or do I start to expand and start to put a team in? Do I need a managing director? Do I need an HR team? Do I need a finance team? Where do I take this? And it was at that point, my competitor, and listen, let me tell you about my competitor. I was a pain in their butt. It's like a monopoly board. Imagine I was their Park Lane and Mayfair, okay? They owned all the surrounding nurseries and I was just there, like that thorn in your backside, right? And they just approached me and they said, name your price. How much do you want for it? And that's how the story began. So I did Mm -hmm. very well out of that purchase. And I know that they're going to go on to do extremely well. One of the nurseries was Ofsted Outstanding when I handed it over and the other one was Ofsted Good with areas of outstanding. The way to sell a business is not on the way out. You want to sell it on its high so you can command the price that you want. And I didn't want to leave on a negative. I didn't Mm -hmm. want to leave as an emergency buyer, seller, sorry. I wanted to leave on a really, really positive note. So, and that was the story. Um, Selling was really difficult, incredibly hard, Um, soul-destroying, I would say. It took everything out of me and it went down like a lead balloon in the community because they felt abandoned. I was mama nurture. That's what I was called. I was somebody who'd seen a thousand children through my organization. I couldn't even go to Tesco's without being recognized because I'd looked after so many children in the community. It went down like a lead balloon, as I said people just felt that I'd left them. But I couldn't tell them I was selling because I'd signed an NDA. I couldn't tell them that I was moving on because people would move away, staff would leave. So I literally told them on the day I'd sold the business. I walked in and I said, guys, it's time for me to move on. That's tough. It was so hard, Marina. I grieved. I grieved so hard for this company because when I left, I left. And nobody spoke to me again. They still don't speak to me. And I cried so hard. It, was hel- it wasn't It was dealt with in the best way um, by the buyer. Um, 
and that's even by their own admission. And I was treated poorly by the staff that I'd basically looked after for 10 years. They felt as though I just left them. They felt I'd sold them out. But what we have to recognize when you're doing business, it's not a charity. It's not a charity. And this is the hard thing about nurseries. Because you're part of the community, they think of you as a charity. They think of you as somebody that needs to be there. But I have mouths to feed. I've got a business I need to run and make money from, you know? I also sold straight after the pandemic. So we'd been hit really hard. Um, But you know what? That's all behind me now. And we're a year and a half on. And whilst it was so hard leaving that business, it wasn't good for me. It wasn't good for my mental health. The business became bigger than me. I was in a situation where it was doing so well that the staff had more power than I did. And Mm -hmm. they used to rule how I manage my business. And I needed to turn that right back on its head. It needed a bigger organization to manage the staff. And I recognized all that. And to be really honest with you, the staff needed a proper infrastructure. They needed somebody who could look after them better. I was now building my house in the background. My attention wasn't on the nursery. It was still doing well, but it just needed more oomph behind it. And I just felt it was better for the business. It was better for the community that I sold to my competitor. Let them enjoy it. They wanted it. They'll make a better success of it. It's a year and a half now. Sounds, by the way, exactly the perfect time and the right decision Mm. to uh, let the business move on to a a next stage. Um, I'm absolutely with you, but it must have been so hard. One year on now, do you miss all of that? Do you miss being center of community? Do you miss hundreds of children to look after? Do you miss... Um, being the center of the world for so many people. Yeah, well, so interesting. I don't miss nursery life. Owning nurseries is a very thankless job. You know, you have to get up very early in the morning, you go to sleep very late at night. And imagine dealing with that many parents where you're looking after their most prized possession, you know, and... It was a very affluent area, which comes with its own challenges. It used to be things like, dear Manisha, I was just wondering if child X could have freshly made porridge in the morning with freshly squeezed orange juice. No, I'm sorry, you can't. We're in a ratio of one to eight. That doesn't work. (laughs) We do Weetabix and we do Kellogg's cornflakes. That's what we do. Um, So it came with a lot of challenges and I've got loads of hilarious stories about some really bougie parents that wanted the absolute best for their children. Whilst we did our absolute best, the challenges I had were more with the parents. And I don't miss that. I felt worthless some days. You know, I felt I was never good enough. And that feeling of constantly being beaten down when every day you're just trying to do your best was really, really hard. I don't miss it. What I do miss, I miss business. I miss the thrill of costs going out, income coming in, working out that deficit or the highs of that. I really miss earning money in that kind of way. It was a lucrative business. I'm not going to lie. 
Um, we did really, really well with it. I really miss that, but I've always done well in property. I've made a business out of consulting for interiors following my self-build. My Instagram has turned into a business in itself. So I've got lots of little things that I've been doing where I still see that cost and that income coming in and I really enjoy it. And using the money that I've made from selling the business, I flung onto stocks and shares for now. And I'm going to have a really hard think about what I'm going to do with it. So it's definitely not the end. It's just a pause for now, working out what I'm going to do next. But in the meantime, I still have the thrill of having businesses. Do I miss this being the center of attention? (laughs) I'm sure people will say I probably do. But I think the older I'm getting, I actually enjoy just pulling back slightly, being more of a family person, Mm -hmm. looking inwards this time has allowed me to be focused on my children and giving them everything that I wanted to give them because I was quite absent. I was quite an absent parent during the time I had the nurseries. And that was so hard, Marina. Can you imagine looking after 180 children in a week, but I had someone else looking after my own children? That was tricky. And that was a tipping point for me where I was like, no, this has got to stop. I care more about what these people think about me over here. But yet my two little children are looking at me and they're being looked after predominantly by their their dad. Whilst he was doing a sterling Mm -hmm. job, you need a mum and a dad. I mean, look, don't get me wrong, that doesn't work for everybody, but that's what I wanted. If I was their mum and their dad, you know? Um, Sorry, what I mean is, is that I wanted both mum and dad to be present considering we were both in a happily married situation. So what that's allowed me is to do that. And I'm really grateful for those opportunities. I don't miss the nurseries. I don't. I'm I'm really happily moved on. But um, this time has given me an opportunity to work for them and be a better mum. You mentioned a couple of small businesses and side hustles. Um, let me just bring the Instagram in. Yeah. And uh, this is where accidental again comes to <laughs> comes to comes to my so head accidental. Uh, that you um from what i understand became accidentally an influencer with 50 or uh, 55,000 or so follows on instagram and uh, there are lots of bloggers and influencers who do that full time and they consider uh, themselves uh, full time uh, bloggers and you just you just did uh, did that it so was hilarious. How how did that happen? But the uh, the the most fascinating thing that you are not uh, actually the influencer. It's the house. It's the house. House is the influencer. <laughs> so could you tell a, a little a little bit about this? Such an interesting story. I found it fascinating. I, I loved it. So I one of my favourite stories, to be really honest with you, and it makes me giggle no end. So after I had my second. Remember that delusion of grandeur I was telling you about earlier? I think once a child exits from my womb, something happens to my hormones and I think I can do anything. The nurseries happened with the first one and with the second, literally he was here three months and I'm like, I'm going to build a house and it's going to be big. (laughs) And that's what I did. Within three months, I started to build this house. And 
As I was building the house, I was blogging a little bit about the journey and it was purely because I've got friends in Dubai, I've got friends in America and I wanted to share on a platform um, some photos, some snippets of what I'm doing. And by nature, I have a very naughty sense of humour. For those that know me, they know that I'm very silly and I do like to talk about things that maybe I shouldn't be talking about. And that really came through in my in my Instagram. So I'd post pictures, put my naughty little captions because it was only going to be seen amongst my close friends. And all of a sudden, people externally were like, oh, what's going on here? This is rather interesting. Oh, God, she's actually quite amusing. I might just press that follow button. And eventually a few big home accounts started to follow um some celebrities started to follow and lo and behold the pandemic kicked in people were spending more time in their homes they were more interested in home improvements and interior design and it literally exploded it exploded during the pandemic and i think i got to about 50,000 followers by the end of the pandemic and all i did was post videos of my house add some very naughty captions um, give little snippets of my personality and lo and behold that's how Instagram came about I love Instagram I've had highs and lows with it there were some times where it just wouldn't really take off for me and there was a real lull and it became soul destroying having to always keep performing right you're always performing for mm-hmm. a crowd and that wasn't always met favorably you know you have your trolls out there I don't show my face on Instagram because I feel for me, the minute I show my face, it becomes about me, Manisha, was actually my Instagram is about the house. And so what people get is the voice and they get little uh, snippets of my personality. But I think I'm, for the time being, I'm going to keep my identity hidden. It just means that people talk less about what I'm wearing what I look like and what my hair's doing that day because my hair can be wild some days. And I think it just means it focuses about what I came onto Instagram for about the house. So what will happen when you finish the self-build? God knows. Well, the house is never done, is it? Is a house ever done? Maybe the first bathroom I did would need renovating by the time I'm done. <laughs> I've still got lots of snippets of the house that I need to do. There's a summer house area. There's areas of the garden I still need to do. My bedroom still needs doing. It's got a beautiful big bed in it, but no furniture. There's lots of parts that need doing. And that is what I share on Instagram. So you're absolutely right that Instagram was a pure accident. But all these little accidents have led me to where I need to be. And you might argue, was it an accident? Was it fate? Was it luck? Was it actually me? You know, was it me portraying? You know how women have these pheromones Mm -hmm. that attract men? Was it that? You know, was it just shining through that these things just came to me because I was really open to it? I think uh, whatever that is and what I I really see that you 
something falls on you or you stumble over or but then you just uh, grab it and take it your own with instagram you you play it down and oh, i'm just posting some pictures but that's uh, that's a beautiful page uh, and you can see the shots uh, the the color schemes the captions there's a lot of thinking uh, thought behind it there's a lot of care and love uh, I'm a big fan of fan, fan <laughs> of your you. fan of your page. So it's uh it might have started accidentally, but uh, I think success is not accidental. You uh, you put a lot of your heart and soul in it. Um and because social media is, is such a big deal, do you would you have any tips for people who uh would like to do the same uh, or who are thinking or dreaming of social media success? Some snippets some Definitely. snippets some hits and uh, hints and tips. It's all about captivating the audience. See you've got to take those beautiful images you've got to produce those beautiful reels but in it you've got to give the audience something you've got to tell them where you bought something from you've got to share what paint color you used you've got to give the viewer something otherwise why are they watching um so that is something that i always hold very dearly and i always remember that what am i giving to the person when they're about to watch this so i do that And some of that, you know, it's not a collaboration. It's not a paid promotion. You just do it because you love sharing information. There's that. Then it's the engagement part. You've got to engage with the people who are following you. You've got to speak to them. You've got to make out. Some of them have become friends, but you've got to make them feel like that there is a friendship. That doesn't mean in an unauthentic way. I'm not saying be fake. But you have to harbor and you have to nurture these little interactions and make them feel good. That is why I'm there. I want to make people feel good and have a laugh. And the humor for me is a big part of my Instagram page. I want people to escape onto my page and not feel down in the dumps that, oh, why is my house not like this? Because that is the tendency that can happen. When you see a big, beautiful house on Instagram, you're like, how do I do this? How do I make it happen for me? So what I do is I never ever show parts of my house that will make people feel that way. I don't show jewelry. I don't show handbags. I don't show that kind of stuff. I show really good bargs, bargains um, that I buy, but I also mm -hmm. show, show luxury items because that appeals to a certain market as well. And in my home, I love to mix Stuff that I've got from Matalan, H&M Home, Zara Home, Homebase, B&Q. It doesn't matter. High street stuff. But I like to mix it in with Bella Figura, Porta Romana, Heathfield. Beautiful, stunning luxury brands. Mix it in together and you get a beautiful home. And I think that's why my page appeals. Because you can still get the look, but it doesn't matter about the size of your house. You know? Other areas I would say with Instagram is you've got to post every day. You've got to engage. Consistency. Yeah, consistency. consistency. There's People, no way around exactly, it. <laughs> exactly. Save those highlights. Keep your story active. Stay relevant. One thing I don't do, I don't get involved in political dramas. So I will not post about some of the plights that are happening to women in India, Iran, Pakistan, Ukraine. I don't doesn't mean I don't think about it. I think about it all the time. 
I want my platform to be somewhere where people come to escape. I think if you make your political stand, um, if you put yourself out there on a political stand, I think you're open to a lot of abuse because people don't necessarily agree with you about where, what your views are on Israel, for example, Palestine. It's just not for me. Doesn't mean I don't think it. I'm actually a very well-educated woman who is very read up on the news. And I do have a view on politics and what's happening on social media. I just don't think my page is where I'm going to go with it. I want to talk about paint. I want to talk about vases. I want to talk about metal inlay and furniture. That's what excites me. And that's why people come and see me. Mm -hmm. What Boris Johnson's doing right now does is not for me. And where Matt Hancock is putting his hands is also not for me. But I have an opinion on it. <laughs> I I can't I can't agree. My some some be, uh, some beautiful uh, nuggets and snippets I wrote for you, for you down. Um, hopefully that will be useful. You mentioned one thing uh, that humor is your escape. Yeah. So now, knowing you a little bit, you uh, have a wonderful sense of humor, not just on Instagram but in real life, uh, <laughs> in real life as well. Um, is there? Anything else which you consider your escape or something which is your uh, support system uh, to get you through your life? Um, yeah. What What is it? So what I helps definitely you? think humor and interiors. I love throwing myself into designing schemes and I take a lot of joy in looking after my house. Cleaning, deep cleaning, organizing. There's something so therapeutic about doing that. I just feel so good. But in terms of my support network, I'm surrounded by a beautiful family. I'm surrounded by a lot of good friends. Um, I do take a lot of time out to not only have family time, but I do also do a lot for myself. And I think that's really important to walk away from your home, spending time with good friends, whether it's going out for dinners, eating good food, going to the theater. I do do some of that by myself. Um, grab a friend, tell them to come along with me, and then I come back to the family unit. Sometimes there is a tendency to really focus on family time, whereas I actually think it's really important to walk away from the family for a few hours, do my own thing, and then I come back and I'm like, oh my God, I've missed you so much, you know? And it helps me re-engage with them again. I think too much family time can really bog me down. I find the daily grind of family time sometimes really overwhelming, whether it's organizing all the kids' social events, all their extracurricular stuff, all the school activities, all their homework, that can really find me overwhelming. And, uh, sorry, find is very overwhelming for me. So walking away, having a quick facial, getting my nails done, that self-care is really, really good for me. And I don't think women take enough time sometimes. They're like, oh, you know what, I'll just do this little bit of homework, then I'll go and do my nails. It's not for everyone, but just doing those little bits really helps me to stay grounded and focused and allows me to engage back with the family. I would say those are my little tidbits where I feel good again. And like I said, the house is everything. I feel safe. When I walk mm -hmm. into my house, I'm like, <sighs> I'm home. And I just shut that door and I feel like my worries go away. And that was your life goal. That was my goal. <laughs> I mean, I feel emotional thinking about it, but you're absolutely right. That's what I wanted. And, and that is the moment where I just shut the door and I'm back. 
have you had any failures? <laughs> it oh. sounds sounds like uh, you haven't, and uh, uh, you you were lucky in many ways. Certain uh, certain things you uh, persevered through and made it uh, success. Did, did do you think you had failures? Did you fail? How you deal with failure, or was it smooth sailing? That's really good. So, I would say there were a couple. Again, we're talking about turning points, tipping points. Life has been up and down. You know, life has always been up and down. Firstly, I'd say with the build, okay? I made some grave errors when building my house. Big mistakes. I thought, what could be so difficult? I get a builder. I pay him money. They build my house. No. No, 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 no. Life doesn't work like that. You need to build that team around you. And I learned the hard way. I needed a quantity surveyor. I needed a quality surveyor. I needed to have people around me in my realm, in my professional capability, that will basically make sure that I couldn't fail. And I learned within six months that building a house is a mammoth task and it's like a mini business. And there's no way I could do that by myself. As my relationship started to wane with my developer, it was always about money. We always fought about money. I started to build my team around me. So I did fail, as it were. I lost money. You know, I'm building this house, but then I recouped it again. What I did was I built that team around me and they made sure I was protected and I put that buffer in. In terms of personal failures, I couldn't have my second child easily. It just didn't come to me. I had to get a lot of medical intervention to have my second. And I did feel like it was a failure on my part. I felt as a woman, I have one job. <laughs> I have one job <laughs> and that is to procreate. That is to have children. So for me, I've now come to terms with a lot of that. But I did feel a failure by not being able to have my second. And that is why that there is such a big age gap between them. There's six years between them. But we got there in the end. And now I just look at him and I'm like, they broke the mold when they made you. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> there is no other child like you. And I paid a lot of money <laughs> to have you. But I am so truly blessed to have him in my life. And I just feel so complete. So I know that seems really morbid to think that I did think of that as a failure not to have him. But I did at the time. You know, I felt... Jesus Christ, I have all this stuff. I'm building, well, the plan was to build a house. I hadn't actually built the house at this time. Um, I have so much stuff going on for me, but I can't even bring a freaking child into this world. Do you know well, what I mean? That's the stereotypes. So we were, exactly. we were talking about the stereotypes affecting you and maybe the people have accepted, but you were resisting in, in your head and fighting that but both of those uh, sound like huge success stories to me now eventually eventually and I, there is obviously failures um up and down there were more mini failures I didn't have a breaking point I didn't have a point where it all collapsed in I'm not gonna lie um but there were definitely troughs it and then there, the, there were the peaks basically so I hope that was really interesting for you, you know, um, in terms of the failures. 
I don't know whether I've met the criteria. I think it's uh, everything is so subjective. It's uh, it's not the failure; it's what we perceive as failure, and then more importantly, how you deal with it. And I think you dealt with all of those setbacks beautifully. You uh, you didn't you didn't give up. You carried on, and uh, you uh, you played by your own rules, and you made it you made it your way. And you have a fabu fabulous therapist in the background who supports you along that journey. During some of the tough times, I did go and seek alternative help. I did engage with a therapist because it's like a personal trainer. You need someone for your mind. You know, during the hardship Absolutely. with the nurseries and having a second child and not being able to have a second child, running a business, trying to keep your family home together... I really struggled with my mental health, so I went and sought alternative help, and it was worth every penny. And I think people shy away from going and seeking help. They look at it as like a weakness. There is a bit of stigma around it. Oh, people don't talk about I it. I would go it's again and again and again. I would, I'd even go now. You know, are you telling me that people don't have horrible thoughts in their head? Although I'm happy, I still would love to go and see her again, just to be like, hi. I think it's a part of your mental hygiene and that's absolutely that's fundamental um mental health support foundations absolutely um Anisha, just a few uh, maybe quick quick ones yeah. quick questions quick uh quick quick answers so had you not been a property developer turned uh, entrepreneur turned uh, banker turned, <laughs> turned consultant turned uh, self-builder turned influencer what do you think you could be do you know what marina such a such a good question because i often speak about this with my parents they spent a fortune putting me through private education at one of the best schools in our area. And I messed around. I messed around. Some of the stories are laughable. I just didn't even used to write notes. I just used to memorize the textbook and then go straight into a GCSE exam and splurge everything I'd read the night before. Whatever works. Uh, whatever works, I know. But if I just applied myself, self, I would have been lethal. I know I'm an intelligent woman. But I just couldn't be asked. I think because home life was a little bit tricky at that time, I was struggling. I used school as a playground, pretty much. I used to go and mess around. I used to have a lot of fun. Um, I think my life calling might have been an architect. To know, maybe I could have been an architect. You have to be clever for that. Um, I think I've ended up where I am. Based on my based on my experiences and my life experiences, but if I was to pick a profession, I'd probably end up being an architect. I probably have the feist of a lawyer, um, maybe as, as a barrister, but I would probably say that an architect would have been my calling. Um, coming back to uh, the to the nurse, to the nursery business, um, and uh, some might say, "Oh, well, that was." That was lucky, or that was a lucky accident. You had, um, you had property experience, uh, but I, I don't think that is. You effectively you took a hundred thousand of seed money and 
10, 20 exit on, on, on exit. Um, would you, let's, uh, if we can do a little brainstorm, if you were to have 100K now to turn into a business, uh, what areas do you think nowadays could work? So to give a little bit of advice of somebody who doesn't know where to start, they uh, they don't have no, uh, they don't have childcare problem, <laughs> so mm. they can't replicate that. Do you th- uh, what what would you do now? So for me, back then, weddings and children were the one. You know, everyone has children, everyone gets married. They were like, although I didn't go into any wedding businesses, for me that was how my brain t- ticked. You need to find an area that, not a gap. You might just need to find an area and do it really, really well and have a USP. So for my nurseries, my USP was elegance, corporate finesse. So I needed to appeal to working professionals. And I offered little things like a concierge service whereby you could... um, drop off your dry cleaning as well as drop your parcels off and that kind of thing. So you have to have a USP. So you either pick something that is currently done, your day-to-day services, but you add a USP to it and put a new twist on it. Or you pick something in a technology market. Technology, social media, all of those areas are booming right now. And the multiples of selling on your business are really, really high. I don't know what the next big thing is, this is kind of where my brain would be ticking. It would be ticking mm-hmm. on looking at what is done, but doing it better. Or actually, is there an emerging market coming through? Is there something that nobody has thought of? Is there a product that I need to invent? And that's where I would be putting my money. Currently at the moment, I'm looking at vertical farming. That is my new little thing that I'm looking at. Um, there are areas in this world, Dubai, Hong Kong, the Midwest in America, who really can't grow anything. And we're looking at ways of growing in a more sustainable way, in an organic way. And these are the areas that I'm looking at. Thank you. Do you have a female role model, somebody you ever wanted to be like, or perhaps you want to be like now? You know what? This is awkward. I don't really awkward men it's men fascinating isn't it um absolutely not i think uh, who so who is that i used to watch dragon's den a lot i used to look at investors entrepreneurs a lot i don't have a single person not one person sticks out to me but i'm actually shocked that i don't have a female role model who does that for me But I look at men and I'm like, I see you. I see what you're doing. I have the same funny sense of humor as you. Same dry, witty, dirty sense of humor as you. I can totally do what you're doing, but I reckon I could do it better with a slightly more softer touch. And I actually feel that entrepreneurs, I feel inspired by them. I would say I don't have any jealousy in me. So I don't look at something and go, oh, why did they get that? How did they get that? I'm like, whoa, hold on. I see what you're doing. Tell me everything about it. Tell me how you did it. I want to feel inspired by it, and then I want to do it better. And I think that's always been my mantra. 
even when I'm sitting in a restaurant, my husband's looking at me, he goes, you're thinking about the business model, aren't you, about how they're making money? And I'm like, yep. <laughs> if this pasta cost 50p and then this sauce and the chef back there and then the business rates are this, and I'm always working out the business model of anything going, shall I set up a restaurant? And then I crunch the numbers and I'm like, no, got to think about the food wastage, got to think about this, the hours that you're open, the turnaround of people sitting there. I feel inspired in my day-to-day -day life and I think... I am wired that way. And I think for anybody who wishes to be an entrepreneur, you have to think about the elements of, do you actually just have it within you? And if you don't, then you need to think about, how do I get inspired about people around me? How do I bug them till the nth degree, getting all the information, teasing it out of them to make sure that I can emulate that in my personal life, but make it better? So you did say that you're you've done what you wanted, you achieved your goals, you're taking time off now, you're step, stepping stepping down and where you're being a mom, you're enjoying being a housewife. Oh, I don't believe that to a second. That <laughs> it's not going to last long. <laughs> that it will last long. <laughs> I have um, serial an entrepreneur in you. So I I can't wait to see what will be coming around the corner Love and it. all the wonderful success stories that are coming up in the next years and years and years to come. I know. It's definitely not the end. Thank you. Thank you so <laughs> Thank much, you, Marina. It was a pleasure. Thank you.